Lord Jesus, we are overwhelmed by your love. We are overwhelmed by who you are. Who are we that you'd be mindful of us? Who are we that in your infinite worth you'd come here and you live a perfect life and you die a horrible death taking the wrath of God for our sins on you? Who are we then that as you pass through death and, and conquer death, and as you are the resurrection and the life, who are we then that you would give us such life? Our only response is our, is our lives. Our only response is to give you everything. Because you've given us everything. Holy God, thank you for calling us here today. Thank you for meeting with us. Holy Spirit, thank you for this, this weightiness of your presence here. My prayer, Lord, is that we can, as we continue today, as we continue in your word, that, Lord, you would accomplish great things for your name. That, Lord, if there are people in here who need to stop running and they need to give you everything, Lord, I pray that today you would conquer some major things in their lives and that today they would give you everything. Lord, I just, we just want you to do what you want to do in this time. We want you to move freely. Thank you for your word. Speak clearly now. Please, Lord, don't let me get in the way. Speak clearly now to us for your fame. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, what a morning already. Jeez, come on. Um, well, I'm really, really glad to be with you. I didn't know if I was going to make it this morning. Uh, we've been this weekend with a bunch of uh, middle school and high school students at the Student Life Conference, and I've spent the last two nights sleeping on the floor, uh, and I've come to a, a, a realization. Uh, there aren't too many things I'm above doing, and that apparently is now one of them. All right, I'm putting that on my list. Not sleeping on the floor anymore, all right? It's just not something I'm going to do. Um, but I'm really, really happy to be with you. Our, uh, our scripture, our, our sermon title today is Firm Faith. And I put a little tag on there, even in the face of death. Uh, what terrifies you? Think about that. What terrifies you? Now, I know it changes. I know it changes as we grow and as we change and as our relationships change. I mean, would you like to see what terrified me? Uh, when, I was, when I was a kid, and I say kid, I mean, it probably got into my teenage years, a little embarrassing, but here we go. Here's my foe, all right? The escalator, all right? Now listen, this fear is not unfounded. This fear is my parents' fault, all right? Because here's the deal. 
our parents would say, watch whatever you want to watch on TV. And we'd be like, this is an interesting show called Rescue 911. It's got William Shatner on it. Let's watch that. And they're like, that, kid, that probably has no consequences. Go ahead, right? And I remember watching this episode where this little boy, about my age, got his windbreaker jacket that I used to wear stuck in one of these escalators. And the next shot is his arm like under the escalator. It's just like his shoulder and he's like screaming. And I remember I didn't sleep for like days, right? And I just thought escalators are out to get me. And I was terrified. And, and when I walked into a store, like if my dad took me to a store and uh, like to the mall, which would have had to have been on Christmas Eve because the only time we went to the mall. And so we would go and we would see, when I saw an escalator and I realized I had to get on it, there was this like, this cold sweat, right? Like this, this cold sweat. My, my hands got, got, got sweaty and, and, and I kind of just freaked out. Like that, that, that feeling of just, oh no, right? And you guys have had that feeling. And as I've gotten older, that's changed. Like I'm super good at escalators now, right? I challenge any of you to ride an escalator better than I will, all right? Like I got it down. But I've had different things in my life that, that have come up and different, different experiences that that same cold sweat, that same like, like really scary feeling has still hit me. I, I remember when we uh, closed on our house, uh, no one told us that, um, oh yeah, not only are you paying a, an incredible amount of money for this house, um, we're also uh, going to take something from you called closing costs. So we literally show up at the table to close on the house and no one tells us, and they're like, hey, by the way, uh, we need $5,000. And I was like, uh, good luck, right? Like, I don't know. My stuff's already in the driveway. Like, we're getting in this house, right? And I remember when that cunt came up. Anytime, like, money troubles like that would come up. Like, that same familiar just, <gasps> right? You know, and, and, and I remember... Um, I remember when my parents called me, and, and uh, they were acting real, real weird, and they wanted to talk to, uh, to me and talk to Angela, and they came to our apartment, and uh, I remember my dad sitting down on the couch and, and telling me uh, that he has cancer, and I remember that same feeling, you know, that escalator feeling of, what, you know? I, I, and, and of course, you know, I, I, another, another word that comes up when we, you know, we, we hear death, or we hear somebody we know is facing that, or or someone we know has died, that, that same panic, you know? Someone at once called death the, the king of terrors, you know? And, and I, I think that's true. And we can't escape these difficulties. Ben Franklin famously said, our new, constitution, excuse me, our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except what? Death and taxes, right? Death and taxes. And so death is a real part of our lives. No matter how it makes us feel, no matter what kind of uh, terror you might feel with it, it's a real part of our lives. I remember when I was a kid, I had a concept of death, but it didn't really have a lot of weight to it. I, I know like my son, Max, he's three years old. He has a concept of death, but there's not a real weight to it that, that he will have as an adult. You know, when his great grandmother died, we had to explain to him uh, what death was. And, and as we explained that to him, he, he grasped that there's some sort of separation there's something like that, but, but he doesn't have that real weight to it. And do you remember the, the first time death really got a weight to it? You know what I'm talking about? When it really hit you for the first time? I remember uh, it was my grandmother Winnie when she passed away. I remember everything about that day. I remember what I was wearing. I, I remember the, the car we rode in. I remember the, the stupid song my dad was listening to, right, when we drove. I, I, I remember the look 
on the, on the lady's face who came to get me from the church to bring me to my grandmother's apartment. I, I remember the people who were standing there waiting for us in there, like the, the ministers Bellevue had sent, right? I, and I remember that. I remember being on the corner as they were bringing her body out, and I, I wanted to see it, but of course my parents didn't want me to see it, and I, I remember that, that, that whole tension in my head. What do I, what do, I do here? What's this about? I, I remember just bawling my eyes out. I, I remember all of that vividly, right? And, and at that point in my life, death became extremely real to me. And, and it's real. And not only is it real, but it can be really scary. I mean, we're wired not to want to die, all right? If you want to die, something's wrong, okay? Like, that is not normal. We are wired to not want to die. That's why we have phobias. That's where our phobias come from. Think about your phobias. Why do you have those phobias? I don't want to die, right? I, I am fairly afraid of heights, okay? And I, I say fairly because if I'm on a roller coaster or something, I'm down. Like, whatever. Go as high as you want. No big deal, you know? Because I don't know. If I die on that, I guess Six Flags will, like, take care of my family. I don't know. But anyway, like, I'm, I'm okay with that. But, but if, we're just want, if, if we're just, like, experimenting with heights, like, wouldn't it be great to climb this incredibly tall tower and, and tie a piece of rope around your ankle and jump off of it and, like, bounce for a little bit? No, it would not, right? Right? And so, like, I can't do it. I, remember, I watched a video on YouTube of these, these teenagers who climbed to the top of a construction crane that was, like, 200 feet high, and they're, like, using it like monkey bars. They're, like, swinging. And as I'm watching the video, I know they're okay because they got the video online, right? You know what I mean? I know they had to upload it, and so I know they're okay, but the whole time I'm like, I'm going to throw up, right? Like, I couldn't do it. I'm afraid of heights because I don't want to die. I don't want to fall off of something, right? If you're, if you're afraid of uh, uh, flying, why are you afraid of flying? You don't want to crash, right? Uh, well, if you're afraid of clowns, why are you afraid of clowns? I don't know. I Actually, I don't understand that one. But anyway, like, a lot of our phobias come from the fact that that death can be really scary. Uh, it can be scary at times. And, and death also really hurts. Yes, it's real. Yes, it's scary. But it can really, really hurt. In the past year, um, this school year, um, at Mississippi College, my alma mater, uh, there was a student who was killed in a car accident. And he was a good friend of, of one of our students here at this church. And I remember like, hearing what he talked about. And maybe it was because I went through the same thing with a friend, uh, some friends of mine in college as well, died in a car accident. And but I remember feeling that, that, that hurt again, you know? Or maybe it was just, was it just last week that that student at Union University was murdered on campus? And you, you think about that, and, and even though you're not familiar with the situation, you can't help but, but hurt, you know? Death hurts. You know, we've, uh, we've got this um, supposed mythical directory coming at some point. And as we were talking about it and we were thinking about it and we were looking through some of the pictures, there's a lot of people that will be in that directory who are with the Lord now. And you can't help but see their faces and hurt, you know? We were sitting in the hallway, I remember we were sitting there talking and um, Margie Rutherford's name got brought up, a lady at our church who recently went to be with the Lord. And her name got brought up and someone... Uh, so it's so stupid but a student of mine came up and and he saw the picture and he said oh I know her what happened where is she she's with Jesus now and he like it like blew his mind he had no idea and and it took him a second like he'd only seen her in passing but you could tell just in that moment it hurt him there was a hurt there they weren't close they didn't play bridge together right but there was hurt there. Death, it really hurts. And so we grieve. 
But look at 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Look at what it says. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others, as others do who have no hope. So it appears that we as believers have hope, and we're supposed to grieve with hope. We're supposed to grieve differently. And so we must grieve with hope. And what is hope? Well, we've, we've defined it before. Hope is what? It's future faith. It's trusting in God's goodness in the future, that he's going to be, as he is now, good and faithful. Then I trust him with my future. My future's not here yet, but I trust that he's already there and he's taking care of it for me, right? That's future faith. That's hope. And so we're told when we encounter death, we have to grieve with faith. We have to grieve with faith. Now listen, and this might be difficult, but I promise you there's hope today. Think back to, to when death was most real to you. Might be a loved one, might be a, a friend, a family member, whatever. Think back to when it was most real to you. Isn't it true that in those times, in those moments, it seems to be when our faith uh, is most shaken? Doesn't that seem to be true? Doesn't that seem natural almost? That, that when everything's going along and death interrupts, there's that moment where where our faith kind of shakes. I remember when I was a student at Mississippi College and my friend Maxim was killed in a car accident. We got together that night and we got in a, in a house and I was, I was in a bathroom. And, and the, the bathroom was open. I mean, I was just, I was just in there. there. The house was packed and I just I had to get away from everybody and, and I, I was trying to collect my thoughts. I didn't know. I, I was just uh, shocked. And as I'm standing there in the, in the bathroom, a friend of mine comes up and he says, they're waiting for you. And I thought, great, the aliens found me. They're back. No, but I said, who are, the, who are they? And he said, everybody's waiting for you. I said, what do you mean? And he said, everybody's in the living room. They need you to say something to them. And as I went into that living room and I opened the scriptures, I realized that everyone in that room was shaken. And everyone in that room, their faith was shaken by this. But according to this verse, that should not be so, brothers and sisters. According to this verse, our faith shouldn't shrink in the face of death, but it should stand firm. And how in the world is that true? Well, John chapter 11 is our scripture today. You can go ahead and turn there. That's what Holly read for us this morning. She did a great job. I'm so glad she did that for us. But uh, John chapter 11 is where we're going to be. And we're going to see that for those in Christ, our faith shouldn't shrink in the face of immense difficulties, illness, or even death, but it should stand firm. So turn to John chapter 11. You don't have a Bible. There should be some under your chairs. Um, if, you see, if someone next to you has a Bible, it, it looks nicer. Just take it. John chapter 11. Uh, and you can, you can follow along with us. I grew up at Bellevue Baptist Church right down the street small country church, and um, there was a, a play they did every year around Easter called the Passion Play, um, and in the Passion Play, there were, it was a story of Jesus, uh, it was kind of a, an abbreviated story of Jesus, and then it was supposed to be the last week of his life, what we call the Passion, right, and uh, leading up to the, the crucifixion, um, and so uh, there, were, there were a lot of things that um, I really liked in that play, there, there were things that were highlights for me, one 
uh, was uh, the demoniac, uh, the, the guy that was demon-possessed. Because, uh, like, out of nowhere, you're in church. And, like, like, when I was growing up, we had to wear the most uncomfortable clothes in the world to go to church. You know what I mean? Like, like we had, uh, you know, we, we had our khakis and our, our Sears uh, blazer and just, you know, just shoes that I'm not sure, um, like, bent at all. I think they were wooden. But anyway, like, it, and so the fact that there was a dude like with nothing but a loincloth on, running around the stage screaming, acting like a maniac, was like, this is what church should be. Like, I was super pumped. And if you can't tell, that's what's kind of inspired me in the way that I talk to you. Uh, I was like a crazy demon-possessed man. But anyway, uh, I loved that part. And I also love, there's something else I love. I didn't get this one until I got older, but um, I really loved the, the one super, super country disciple. Like, the disciples, like, the people who acted, they weren't professional actors. They were just in the congregation and, like, tried out. And there was always one super-duper country uh, uh, disciple. And so, like, the other disciples would be like, Lord, where are we going to go today? And Jesus would be like, we're going to go do this. And then one of the other disciples would say, Lord, I mean, I'm coming with you. Wherever you go, I'll be right there with you. I'm going to go get some fish, right? And it was just, it kind of just broke it up. And I was like, where was that? Who is that dude, right? And it was just out of nowhere. I love Jesus being resurrected. That was, obviously, it's a highlight of the, of the whole deal. But, like, they had these lights that would come out, and, and everybody would just go nuts, you know what I mean? And, and, uh, and like, I, I don't know. My, my dad's not really a crier. I'm pretty sure I saw that dude cry a couple of times when Jesus was resurrected. And, and like, that was a huge thing for me. But, you know, another thing I really liked was this. I loved John 11. I loved when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. And I was really, really familiar with it. I, I didn't love it for spiritual reasons. I'm going to be honest. Here we go. Confession time. I loved it because it was real life mummy, right? You know what I mean? We're in church and here comes a mummy. This is awesome, right? And so that was my real reason. But I became really familiar with the story, right? So, so growing up, I knew like, okay, so Lazarus gets sick. Uh, his sister sent word to Jesus. Hey, look, our brother's sick. You better come heal him. And Jesus goes, that's cool. I'm going to chill here for a couple of days. And while he's relaxing here, uh, Lazarus dies. He shows up. Everybody's super bummed because uh, Lazarus is dead. And Jesus is like, it's cool. And Jesus gets a little bummed and he cries. And then he's like, it's cool. Hey, Lazarus, come on out, bud. And then Lazarus comes out of the tomb, right? And he used to come, like, he came out of the tomb and he looked great. Like, I don't know. It was always this, this guy at church had perfect hair. And somehow he'd pull his like death stuff off and his hair was perfect again. And he was like, I'm alive. But anyway, like, like I was really familiar with the story. I was really familiar with the story of Lazarus. Now, here's the problem with familiarity. Because when I would come across the, the instance in Scripture, I'd come across John 11. I would go, yep, know this one, John 12. You know? And do you do that? Like things you're familiar with, you just, yep, got that one. Let's keep going. But as I went back to John 11, I realized I was missing some major hope in the details of this story. I was missing some major faith-affirming truth. And that's what I want to do with the rest of the time together. I want to walk through John 11 with you, and I want to point out some things I missed, some details I missed. And this, this sermon isn't necessarily going to be a, here's, a, a, here's some clear application. Do this, don't do this, do this, do whatever. No. This one, we're just going to look at some, some real faith-affirming, um, hope-inducing truth um, that's absolutely f- like just filled me up this week, and I hope it will for you too. So let's, let's look at this. Here's some, here's some real details I miss in this incredible instance in Jesus' life. The first detail is this. This was real love. 
between Jesus and his family. And, and I don't mean like, I don't mean like, uh, Jesus loves you, right? Like, and that's true and that's wonderful, but I mean there's an intimate closeness between Jesus and this family. Think about it. Jesus walks around uh, all the time, and, and not only is he teaching things that are absolutely radical and incredible, but he's also doing miracles that accompany uh, uh, this teaching. And so, of course, people are showing up, and they want to get healed, and they want this, and they want to see it, and they can't believe it. And so there's all kinds of people around him, but I want to know, who really knew him? Like, who, was, who really was in that inner circle? We all have inner circles, right? Who's in that inner circle for Jesus? His family? Okay, I'll give you that. The 12 disciples? Sure, why not? But who else? The answer? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. John underlines three different times their genuine love and affection for each other. Look at verse 2. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. She demonstrated, she, she actually hasn't done it yet. She does it in the next chapter. But she demonstrates a great love and affection and devotion to Jesus by, by going and, and, and using this incredibly expensive ointment and, and perfume that, that you would reserve for someone special in your family who would die. And, and she takes that and, and, she, and she breaks it open and she, she washes Jesus' feet with it. And in a very intimate way, she, she uses her hair to dry his feet. Really a, a deep connection, a deep devotion there. We see not only it with Mary, but, but also uh, with Lazarus. Verse 3, the sisters sent to him, that's Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Jesus obviously had a, a real, a real connection, a real relationship with Lazarus because they didn't have to say Lazarus. They could say uh, the one you love, right? When my wife calls, if she calls from a number I don't recognize, she doesn't have to say, hey, this is Angela Morella Nixon, your wife, Right? No, she just says, hey, it's me. Why? Because there's a real connection there. There's an intimacy there. And so in the same way, they say, look, the one you love. They don't have to say Lazarus. He knows. Oh, that's Lazarus, right? So there's this connection there. And then verse 5, it says very plainly, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So there's an intimate closeness between the family and Jesus. And understanding this can make this passage read a little weird. Look at verse 4 and keep reading with me. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Look at the next verse. So, okay, so so, so is like therefore, right? So therefore, because of his love, because Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then in verse 14, we see Lazarus has died. So out of Jesus' love for them, he allowed Lazarus to suffer illness and die. What? Now this might not seem like a big deal to you because we know the end story. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I know exactly what's going to happen. Like, Of course this is cool because he's going to resurrect Lazarus, right? He's going to give him the best party story ever, right? Like, this is okay. I know the ending. But, but here's the other detail I missed. This was real death this wasn't a rehearsed miracle this wasn't something that Jesus was like okay Lazarus you just gotta lay real still I know you gotta hang out in this cave for a little bit but I'm gonna come get you buddy it's gonna be alright no 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 this wasn't rehearsed this was a real death Lazarus really suffered an illness and, and he really became weak and he really suffered and he, he really struggled to breathe and his organs really shut down this was real. Mary and Martha really watched their brother die. This was a real death. 
Verse 17, it says that he's been dead four days, right? In early tr Jewish tradition, they believed that the, the spirit would hover above the body uh, for three days. And it says, no, four days. He's for real dead, right? The people around him, there's no more hope in their eyes, right? Mary and Martha are saying, no, 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 it's over. He's dead. There's no, he's four days. If you look at verse 39, Martha tells Jesus, okay, look, you can open that tomb and all. He's going to stink, man. He's been in there four days. He's for real dead. Which brings me to the next detail. Because there was real love and because there was real death, there was real hurt. Mary and Martha hurt. They watched their brother die and they watched Jesus not show up like they thought he would. So Lazarus gets sick. Tell Jesus, we got to get him here. They tell Jesus. And they watch their brother just kind of get worse. And there's no Jesus. And he's struggling to breathe and there's no Jesus. And now he won't even wake up and there's no Jesus. And now he's dead and there's no Jesus. And he's been dead a day and there's no Jesus. And the second day, there's no Jesus. And the third day, where is Jesus? Right? They really mourned. Mary and Martha say the same thing to Jesus when he shows up. If you had only been here, he would have lived. If you had only been here, right? So in their mind, it's over. He's dead, and they're mourning. A community hurt. Look at verse 19. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. Apparently, Lazarus and his family had a great relationship with the community that they hurt. You know, typically as you get older, you can expect your funeral to be more sparsely attended, right? Because the people you know, they're dying as well, right? They're going on ahead as well. And when I was in Munford, there was a guy who, who passed away, and he was somewhere in his 90s um, when he passed away. And I remember going to the funeral, and I remember being a little bit late, and I was thinking, it's cool. Like, I'll just slip in the back, no big deal. Um, I couldn't get in. It was packed. It was packed out. And it was people from his community. He'd made such an impact on the community that him passing away hurt them. Same thing here with Lazarus. The community hurt. The disciples hurt. When Jesus tells them that, that he's dead, look at what Thomas says in verse 16. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. That's a deep hurt. Let's go die with him. C.S. Lewis wrote a grief observed about uh, dealing with grief as, as he lost his wife. And he said this about death. The death of a beloved is an amputation. It's an amputation. And they felt this. Have you, have you ever felt that? Mary did. Martha did. The disciples did. The community did. And even Jesus felt it. Jesus hurt. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. The humanity of Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow and he wept. He hurt because Martha hurt. He hurt because Mary hurt. He hurt because Lazarus had to hurt, right? He hurt because the disciples hurt and the community hurt. So these are a few details I really missed that really changed this whole narrative for me. That, that this was real love here. This was real death. And this was real hurt. So go back to verse 5 and 6. This weird combination of verses. That we see that, that Jesus loved them. And, and when he heard Lazarus was ill, 
he stayed two days longer, he, he let him die. Like, let's go back to that. How is it true that Jesus loved them, that he allowed them to suffer and Lazarus to die? And here's how it's true. Because the joy of what he was going to do through their suffering and through death was far greater than the hurt of those things. Let me say it again. The joy of what he was going to do through their suffering and even through Lazarus' death was far greater than the hurt of those things. So what was he going to give them? What was he going to do that was far greater than those things, that had much more worth than the hurt of those things? Look at verse 14 through 15. Jesus told them, that's the disciples, told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that what you may believe. So the reward Jesus is bringing through this hurt, what, what, what he's bringing that's so valuable and so worthy of this suffering is faith. Because you experience this difficulty and will experience my goodness in the middle of it, your faith's going to grow and it's worth it. So their belief in God being who he says he is and their belief in, in trusting in him with their lives, that's faith, will grow stronger. And that is worth their hurt. That is even worth death. Isn't that incredible? What's so special about faith that it's worth all of this? Uh, and that's worth this pain and this hurt. Here's what's so special about faith. Here's the big deal. Faith is the vehicle by which we draw near to God. Faith is the vehicle by which we draw near to God. It's how we first came to God. It says in Ephesians 2.8, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. The grace of God uh, brought you to salvation and faith was the vehicle you took to Him. Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be what? Saved. You want to come to God? You want to be forgiven? Believe. Faith. It's how we get to Him. It's not just how we first came to God. It's how we keep drawing near to God. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of Faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We keep drawing near to God. We keep getting close to God through faith. It's through faith that I believe God accepts me. It's through faith that we trust in His sovereignty over our lives. It's through faith that we can, we can believe Romans 8.28, that we can look and believe that God's going to work all things together, all difficulties together for our good. It's through faith we experience the power of God in our lives. There's an instance where Jesus is walking and there's a crowd all around Him and this woman had been bleeding for 12 years and she reaches out and she touches His cloak and the power of God goes from from Jesus to her and heals her instantly. You know what Jesus said to her? Your faith has made you well. Her faith was how she encountered the power of God in her life. Faith, faith matters. Faith is how we draw near to God. It's how we first drew near to God and it's how we continue to draw near to God. So Jesus said, yes, this is real hurt. Yes, this is real pain. And yes, this absolutely is real death. But... I'm going to give you something greater. I'm going to give you me. I'm going to strengthen the vehicle by which you get closer to me. And how exactly did Jesus accomplish this? How, how did Jesus strengthen their faith in the face of death? And here's how he did it. Look at verse 4. 
When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. How did Jesus strengthen their faith? I'm going to give you two ways, but this first way is mainly and most important. If you don't remember anything else, this is it. Here we go. He revealed the glory of God. That's how he strengthened their faith. He revealed the glory of God. Now, these are, these are really churchy words, glory, right? That seems really ambiguous. What is glory? What does that even mean? He revealed the glory of God. Here's what it means. Glory is the public display, the, 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 the public uh, uh, spectacle here of God's holiness. That's glory. It's when the holiness of God is put on display. Say, great, Grant, you gave me another term. What is holiness? Here's, here's God's holiness. It's, it's God's otherness. It's God's extreme uh, and eternal and infinite value and worth above all things. That's his holiness. It's what makes him him. It's what, it's, it's what uh, without anything here, even if earth didn't exist, we didn't exist, his value doesn't change. He's supremely worthy and valuable above all things. He's holy. He's greater. He's stronger. He's bigger. He's eternal. He's holy. There's nothing like our God. Nothing. There's no one and there's nothing like our God. He's holy. He's infinitely valuable in and of himself, intrinsically, infinitely valuable. That's the holiness of God. There's no one like him. And what is glory? Putting that on display. Glory is showing everybody. It's showing that he is immensely better than all things. That's glory. Showing his otherness. Showing his intrinsic worth. That's glory. You say, where do you even get that? Isaiah 6, listen to this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We get glory because God is putting on display to the whole earth his holiness, his infinite value. So Jesus is going to strengthen their faith by what? By putting on display God's infinite value and his infinite worth. It's how our faith is fueled. Seeing God's infinite worth above all things, that's, that's how we have such huge statements, faith statements, like John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. Why? Because he's more valuable. I've seen his glory. I've seen that he's better. That's why Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. I don't, I don't even live. It's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So again, it's seeing that he's, he's intrinsically valuable. He's, he's worthy above all things. That's his holiness. And putting that on display is his glory. So back to the passage. Let's look at how Jesus put on display the holiness of God above all things. Well, he showed his sovereign power over illness. Look at verse 4. This illness doesn't lead to death. It's for the glory of God. So, so what he's saying is illness isn't, isn't out of my control. I'm above that. You might be at the mercy of illness. I'm not. Illness is at the mercy of me, right? So he shows his holiness, his, his otherness, his, his supreme value over illness. He showed his sovereign power over death. We see verse 39, it says, take away the stone. And Martha said, he said, look, Lord, by this time, there's going to be an odor. He's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see what? The glory of God. She's about to see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, 
I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Again, strengthening faith. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Even death can't disobey him. Remember we said earlier that someone is called death, the king of terrors. Jesus is the king of kings. Even death can't disobey him. He's clearly put on display his glory. His holiness is on display. So Jesus puts that infinite value above all things by showing that in the moments where where we are at the mercy of calamity, calamity is at the mercy of him. And the second way he strengthened their faith was not only and mainly by revealing his glory, but also he revealed our future. Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, listen, on the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Death used to be scary. Death, Death used to be something that could shake our faith because we were destined for God's wrath outside of Christ. Death used to give us a reason to despair because we were destined to be eternally separated from God. Yeah, death used to be scary. But now Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever, are you a whoever? Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Death is nothing now for us but an avenue to him. Death is no longer a dead end for Christians. It's a doorway. Dwight Moody said, someday you're going to read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher. That is all. Out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal. A body that death can't touch. That sin can't taint. A body fashioned like unto his glorious body. Death holds no terror for those in Christ. Not any longer. Only hope of something far Greater. It's not a dead end. It's a doorway for us. I want to conclude with this thought. I like to think about what, what Lazarus was probably like after the resurrection. I bet, I bet his faith didn't waver in moments of difficulty like it used to, you know? Because he can say, God did something incredible for me. God did the worst thing I can think of. He did something incredible for me. Of course he's going to do it again. He's the same, isn't he? And Lazarus lived believing Romans 8, 28, that we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So in the face of illness and difficulty and death, our faith doesn't have to waver. We can stand firm in it because our God, like he did for Mary, like he did for Martha, like he did for Lazarus that day, our God is working all things together, all things, illness, calamity, death, all things together for our good. By His sovereign power, He's weaving our hurts and our difficulties and our calamities and our losses and our confusions and our frustrations together into a tapestry that puts on display His infinite worth and beauty. And in that, 
we can stand firm. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your infinite worth. We thank you that though we did not deserve to see it, you've put on display your infinite value, your infinite worth. God, my prayer for my brother and sisters in this room is simple. My prayer is that, um, Lord, in the face of calamity, in the face of difficulty, in the face of all kinds of things that this world would tell us is worthy to fear, is worthy to, to give up and despair, we look to you. And we'd say, no. Our God is, is greater. He's, he's bigger. He's infinitely more powerful than this. So I'm going to trust Him. And we stand firm in our faith. Lord, it's a reality that there are brothers and sisters, or excuse me, I misspoke. Lord, it's a reality that there are people in this room who they trust themselves and they encounter difficulties, of course they despair. What, are the, what, what other choice do they have? They don't have you. Lord, my prayer for them this morning would be that they would have you, that they'd surrender to you. If there are people in this room that Lord, they've been living their own way. My prayer today is that they'd stop. They'd stop running. And they'd say to you right now, just right now where they are, they'd just simply say to you, please forgive me. Please give me a new life. Make me yours. Lord, I pray you'd bring people to do that. Bring them the courage to do that. We love you. We thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.